This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. Where is the intersection of the economy and emergency management? Where do these intersect? And I think that for generations, emergency managers have played whack-a-mole. Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe. This week, we're talking to Joel Thomas of Spin Global. And Joel and I, we get into a conversation about the economic uh, decisions and the recovery after a disaster, or in this case, the public health emergency, COVID-19. As we see businesses shutting their doors and government-mandated shelter in place and even government-mandated closure of stores, the stock market took a huge hit. The people are uncertain about what's next. Joel did a piece on LinkedIn about the black restart of the economy. And I think we're ready for it. If you look at the stock market today, as I'm speaking to you, it's at 19,898.92. We started the month with 25,916. It's important to really take into consideration the totality of uh, what we're doing and how as emergency managers, we can impact how people behave. Last week, we talked about the ostrich paradox. We talked about behavioral economics. It does make a difference. We can make a difference. Now on to the interview. Joel, welcome to EM Weekly. Hey, Todd. Glad to be here. Those of you who listen for a while know that I look at LinkedIn a lot and kind of go through things and really try to do some research on some of the up and coming disaster and emergency management things that are going on. And I came across Spin Global and it's prepare and coordinate prior to a disaster. And I, and I found that idea uh, really intriguing because obviously preparing for disasters, the, the resilience programs and stuff like this is where we really need to be as emergency managers. So that's why I got excited about that. So Joel, tell me about Spin Global and how you started. Sure. Spin Global is a company that I founded. I'm currently the CEO of Maryland-based small business. We're, we're a disaster and emergency management consultancy providing comprehensive emergency management services. Our mission is unashamedly to disrupt disasters. So much of the industry is focused on the disasters disrupting the lives of people, and as evidenced by where Congress spends money, where, where program energies and efforts are spent. But we've got all this data and science about, hey, if we just prepare and we're more resilient, you know, we could be doing better. So our mission is to disrupt disasters, and our, our sort of subtext to that is from neighborhoods to nations. And we're doing exactly that, from the city of Fairfax to states at national level in the U.S., you know, 12 countries around the world last year working with NATO and, and World Bank and other partners. So, yeah, that's that's in a nutshell who we are. So on your website, you talk about modernizing disaster and risk management and emergency preparedness programs. How are we modernizing this? 
you know, a lot of disaster and emergency management programs are, have a way of doing business, right? And, and the industry in general is a laggard industry when it comes to technology adoption. If you look at a lot of studies that have been put out there around who's adopting technology, who's, you know, implementing things in terms of work productivity, first responder community is a, a laggard community. And so what we try to do is we try to bring the nexus of operations, technology, policy and academia, bring it all together and link them in a unique way so that we can disrupt the way that they're doing business right now and actually be more efficient, more effective. So so what we do uniquely, I think, is we try to link intentionally in, in everything we do, operations, academia, policy and technology. And when we look at modernizing programs, we're really trying to get disaster emergency management programs into the 21st century. As you know, the frequency and intensity of disasters is increasing. You know, we're, we're, we're printing money. We can't keep up with the amount of demand that's out there. And we're just not, as an industry, ready for it. And so I think we've got to think differently. And I think we need to rethink where the center of gravity is. I spent a lot of time focused on the private sector and advocating for the fact that the private sector is the center of gravity. and We should embrace that in this field. And more centrally through our planning process, through our doctrine, through the way we do business. So when we talk about modernizing programs, we're working with the folks that we work with, partners and clients alike, to actually look at that and, and take a fresh look at how they do business. We do need to revamp uh, what we do as emergency managers a little bit. I mean, we move from the traditional model, military model uh, of disaster management. We're looking at what we call the professional model uh, of emergency management now. And, and I think that we need to move into, I don't know what to call it, but maybe we'll just call it the uh, modern or the modern model of, of emergency management, uh, where we're using technology and we're, and we're really engaging with community uh, instead of telling the community what to do necessarily from the top down. Absolutely. So you have a couple areas here that you that you look at. You got disaster prep, spin forward. You have AppTown and Geo Pioneers and Planet Ready. And I want to kind of delve into those areas because I love the way you named them. Uh, disaster prep is kind of straightforward, right? But what is AppTown? In our company, we have capability to develop technology. Uh, AppTown really is sort of the banner under which we we do that, where we understand needs and, and problem sets that the clients are dealing with. And we've actually created a couple of our own technologies. One of them is Planet Ready, planetready.com. It's an online, on-demand preparedness platform that provides on-demand training, exercises, courses, and games for families, businesses, houses of worship. We're trying to reach the 99%, Todd. So much of the efforts... As a consultant inside the Beltways, I see so much of the effort is on the big problems and big challenges, and there's all sorts of talk about reaching, you know, the rest of the country. But I, I, I like to say that our focus with Planet Ready first in the U.S. at least is to reach the 99%, and then globally uh, to do the same. We our, our vision is to have a multilingual platform available in every country of the world to uh, help folks, help the Netflix generation be able to access different types of content that would be interesting to them, not just your typical government off-the-shelf one-pager on a government website nobody visits, but actually, hey, mobile-ready, friendly, you know, gamified stuff that takes 5, 10, 15 minutes to interact with in a multimedia format versus just, hey, read this, you know, do this, et cetera. So that's Planet Ready. And another way that we're sort of delivering through AppTown is uh, through development of a, a tool. It's an online assessment tool called RespondersCQ.com. And that's a tool that we use. It was actually seed funded by Department of Homeland Security. And we have developed it and are using it in dozens of states, cities around the world, New Zealand to uh, Eastern Europe, uh, et cetera. And what, what the tool is, is 
It's an online assessment service and a data management platform that helps you assess and understand your capability quotient, CQ. So there's lots of talk in the industry about IQ, EQ, what's CQ, right? Um, can we measure and assess where we're at? And then quickly in, the, in, in one sitting session, have an idea of where we need to go and, and then have resources available to do that. So unlike a lot of typical processes where people get hired to do assessments and it takes weeks and months to make sense of and then figure out what to do in one sitting session, an hour or less, any of our assessments, you can go in, get an understanding where to go, have a report that you can download with next steps and an online toolkit with tools you can use to implement today. And then the system will remind you to come back and, and, and check on your progress. So anyways, Aptown, it just gives you an idea. Those are two technologies that Spin Global has developed and pioneered and that we're rolling out around the world in cities and communities and in nations, really, across the globe. And I know one of the biggest challenges that I had when I was working in, in the public sector uh, was really engaging uh, the community and, and getting them to understand why preparedness uh, is important. And I know you mentioned that you want to hit the 99%. What is like your approach to hitting that 99% to get them to be prepared for, for disaster? Because in any given spot in this country, in the world that you live in, you have a unique disaster that you're facing, whether it's tornadoes in the Midwest, earthquakes on the West Coast, ice storms on the East Coast, hurricanes, obviously, and we're talking about the United States here, obviously, uh, hurricanes uh, you know, in the, in the South. How do we get people to take all of those things seriously? It's a really great question. I think it's it's really, honestly, the holy grail, right? How do we prepare the world for uh, impending disaster that we, we know will happen, right? Everybody, humanity is, is driven by the tyranny of the urgent. You know, what's in front of me today? Disaster tomorrow, I don't need to worry about that. We, we constantly punt on things. And so part of it is a... Uh, I think we need a cultural revolution like we had in with the seatbelt revolution, you know, or with health preventative healthcare revolution. I'd love to see a global sort of uh, disaster uh, attention be paid to the disaster preparedness and resilience. And I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing the early stages of that. There's lots of talk about it, but I think that we need to then begin to f- find ways to translate talk um, and even resilience in, in theory. I love the idea, but to the commoner, what does that mean? And how do we put that, put something in front of them that helps them actually become more resilient? So to me, technology is the way. For organizations that do preparedness, budgets tend to skew away, far away from preparedness. Now, in our country, we're able to spend more money on mitigation. You know, Congress uh, approved, uh, you know, pre-disaster mitigation uh, in, in a way last year through Dura uh, that uh, is unlike anything previously. But honestly, it's a drop in the bucket. So I think the key, the way to unlock the potential is through technology that is going to be on demand, accessible anywhere. You know, you're still not going to reach everybody. You're gonna, not going to reach 99%. Not everybody has uh, ready access to a smartphone, um, especially when you look globally and to the internet. But I think you can maybe get 80% of the way there. And so I think, I think part of it is we've got to be more creative with how we go about preparedness, I'll give you an example. You know, last uh, this last preparedness month in September, uh, one of our clients, city of Fairfax, they said, how can we do better than we've done in the past? We've got a small city, 25,000, got an emergency management staff of two. How do we reach both our employees and the citizens? And so they leveraged our technology, Planet Ready, and we created planetready.com slash Fairfax City, which you can go to. And we published a series of videos that every week were promoted to the staff. And 400 plus, I think 450 out of 500 employees actually participated in a 10 or 15 minute exercise or training that got them announced more prepared, right? We weren't trying to 
bite the entire apple. We're not trying to get everybody prepared in one session. And you know, it needs to be something that's accessible and gets an ounce more prepared. And then at the same time as citizens, we're able to have access to this. And we had over 8,000 people in that community during that time frame in the public access that. Now think about it. The old way is let's create a workshop and let's go to a community center. And maybe there's, you expect 100 to show up, maybe 20 actually do. I know this because I've done it. And I know a lot of other folks who've done this a lot. It's very cost and time and labor intensive. The cool thing about what we're doing with this approach is it actually costs less than doing that. And it's available and reusable. Right. And so, you know, putting it in the hands of people, it's the scale is now no longer a barrier. Where well, that's the problem. It's scale. And so how do we scale these solutions? And how do we do it in a way that's, again, speaking to the Netflix generation? That's what we're dealing with. We've got to talk in context. Communications 101, understand your audience. So we've got to talk to them in the way that, that they receive messages. We've tried, and I say we, the collective we, have tried, you know, the fear tactic. Like, you prepare now or your family won't eat after the disaster. When the earthquake occurs or the tornado or whatever, the people go out and they prepare after that because then they realize what's going on. And, and it, we show these, like, terrible images of people in the disaster zone, and that's why you should prepare. But it doesn't seem like that's working. Is there another way we can message that would make it more effective? So I think, you know, to answer that question, I, I think fear is uh, one of the greatest um, feelings that elicit emotion. And people, um, when they make an emotional connection with something, they're more likely to remember it and more likely to act on it. And so it, it, there is a level of effectiveness of the fear tactic, but it's actually not been effective at translating. I mean, you see after the disasters, which, you know, Usually that's when people do the most to get prepared or to act and, and, and take action. And there's this momentary thing. But here's the thing. We're forgetful people. And so fear alone, you know, if what was a, made me afraid yesterday isn't making me afraid today. Since then, I got in a car crash. I've got a, a, a job application to deal with. I, you know, there's other things going on in life. And so fear only lasts as long as we have attention to be afraid. And so I think to me, the key is to embed the preparedness and resilience message into the fabric of society, whether it be educational systems, working with the private sector, making it part of safety programs, into um, pop culture, Hollywood. They've done some of this with just bringing attention to it. Obviously, the academic community, the technical communities. I think you just need a full court press on, you know, looking at how to, how to reach people. I think we're not tapping the market on influencers I think, you know, you have these campaigns, you know, like the Red Cross campaigns, you know, donate money right now for hurricane relief. And, you know, you get these concerts and you get famous people saying things. How can we do more to leverage those influencers in society to be a part of the regular communication messaging that needs to happen as opposed to just the emotional moment? Now, reality is the emotional moment, people respond and they respond in droves, right? So I, I think it is a huge challenge. I don't have a silver bullet answer. I, I think when we think about delivery, we need to think in terms of personas. What's what's uh, Johnny, you know, in seventh grade going to respond to? What's what's Granny going to respond to? I think we need to take a, a much more systematic approach to thinking about who our audiences are and, and the messages they'll respond to and being more targeted in our approach. And that's going to take effort. And unfortunately, we tend to just put out a one page and say, oh, this is one size fits all. And there's efforts that have gotten better. We try to hit different communities and demographics, but even within that, there's there's work to be done. And I think it's just too demanding to expect that everyone can offer all this customized messaging the way that we do it. And I think the only way to change that up is is through leveraging technology and and leveraging um, 
some of the latest and greatest tools that are available to us to get this get the word out. Let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, I want to talk about the challenges that you're facing. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Well, welcome back from that quick break, and, and thank you so much for listening to our sponsors because without them, we couldn't bring you the quality content that we bring. So before we went on the break, Joel, we talked about the fact of, of challenges. And so since you've been doing this as a great company, what are some of the challenges that you met with kind of doing your messaging and working on these projects? You know, that's a, that's a funny question. My wife often tells me this. She says, you know what? Disaster preparedness is like flossing your teeth. Everybody knows you need to do it, but hardly anybody does. And so you always have to remember that when you're trying to engage an audience. And she's like, you know, and I'm like, that's so true. For for people like me, disaster nerds, people who do this for a career, for a living, we eat, breathe this stuff. And it's like, this is easy. This makes sense, et cetera. You have to realize for a lot of people, this just, there's a, a huge challenge and it's perception. Again, I come back to the tyranny of the urgent. If it's not urgent now, then why should I act? And, and then related to that, resources, you know, economies, you know, scarcity, you know, when there's scarcity of resources, where am I going to spend my time and my money? It comes down to um, time and money are the biggest challenges. And usually people who talk about this say, oh, we just need the government to print us more money and, and give us more programs. And I'm not here to say that. I actually I'm looking at this from the perspective of the consumer of these products, the, the individuals, families, small businesses, houses of worship. So, you know, I, I'm part of family-owned business. We've got some Main Street bars around the country. And I ask general managers, how much time would you give to some disaster preparedness uh, workshop, seminar, et cetera? And, you know, cause, because usually what people build are these half-day, day-long workshops, and they invite people, if, if they invite uh, private sector, which by the way, you know, DC Homeland Security Emergency Management Agency, big shout out to them. They did that this year a couple of times. And, and even in Maryland, just this week, they invited and had over 200 uh, something businesses show up to a summit. Now they all showed up for a day, but here's the reality. 99.7% of businesses in America, this is a fact in the Small Business Administration, are small. And about half the country's employees work for small businesses. And so when you ask those small businesses, those main street stores, are you going to come to a day-long workshop? I promise you the answer is no. They're dealing with fires today in in their restaurant, in their retail store, in their, you know, barber shop, etc. And so, you know, half a day, is, will that get their attention? I don't think so. I've boiled it down to it's got to be 15 minutes or less if you want to get their attention and it's going to be on demand in their hand where they don't have to leave their store because there is downtime. And then maybe you have the chance of getting achieving the objective you want. It's sort of like thinking about uh, one of the hockey greats said you spend your whole life, you know, preparing so you can get in the, the hockey rink so that one moment in time you can be in front of the goal. And when you're in front of the goal, the puck happens to bounce your way. And then when the puck bounces your way, you slap it with your stick and it passes the goalie and it gets into the net, right? The chances like, and all the prep and work just to get to that point. You know, I think that's what we're dealing with in the field of disaster preparedness. We're just trying to fight for a chance. Here's the problem. We're not giving ourselves a fighting chance the way we're doing it. 
We're asking people to take a day of their life, half a day of their life, come somewhere else that's not in their neighborhood, come to some government facility thinking that's going to impress them. And that just doesn't work. We've got to think differently. We need to partner with the private sector and begin to think like the private sector where scarcity of time and money drives decisions. And the same thing goes for houses of worship, you know, who have limited time and resources. There's obviously a lot of houses of worship who have, I think, are, are classic partners in this. You know, people listen to their spiritual leaders and also preparedness is a theme, even theologically, that I think matters to people. Being prepared is something that I think that resonates with them. This is an audience that that emergency managers should be capitalizing on. And, and, and there are cases around the world where that is absolutely happening. But there are more churches than not that are nowhere near where they could be in terms of partnering in terms of this preparedness message. And and then it just goes down to individuals and families. Depending on your socioeconomic situation, this is going to come down to, am I going to deal with life or death now or the potential that an asteroid might hit the Earth, right? So really, that's and we just need to accept that and identify that. And, and we need to allow that to sink in and reconfigure the way we think about how to engage the world. And so that's what we're trying to do at Spend Global. We're trying to disrupt disasters. And to me, the disaster, it's not necessarily the natural factors that matter. Actually, disasters are more a consequence of socioeconomic factors. You look back to a 1976 paper by Phil O'Keefe, Ken Westgate, and Ben Wisner. It's a pretty famous paper. They argued that case. Right. And so we look at that. We think about that. How do we actually internalize that and allow that to change how we do these programs? And I'll say this. I work with government. I've never been in the government as an employee, but I work with government. And I think that there's limitations. I think the real chance and the opportunity of this generation is to rethink this through the lens of the private sector. The private sector is employing Americans Mm -hmm. around the country. Those employed people have families. And think about how we could partner better with those companies and business owners to to achieve the, the mission. So anyways, that's my response to your question about you know, what are some of the challenges and and even some of the way I think about how we begin to crack the nut, no silver bullet here, how we begin to crack the nut on really tipping the scales the other direction. So you mentioned a couple of times the social economic issues that that are there. And and I agree with you. I actually did a paper when I was an undergrad on that effect on how disasters impacted minority owned uh, women businesses uh, more than, than anyone else. How do we encourage people to be financially and fiscally prepared for disasters uh, as well as just prepared with stuff? I'd like to extract that question a, a layer further, and I'll come back to that. I'd like to think about this question of where is the intersection of the economy and emergency management? Where do these intersect? And I think that for generations, emergency managers have played whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. Disasters happen, something, I need to fix it. Whack the mole, whack the mole, whack the mole. I think that, you know, it, we live in interesting times. In, in the U.S., our current national security strategy, it said for the first time, one of the four pillars, economic security is national security. So thinking about that and how that trickles down to the emergency management community, what is the role of the modern emergency manager in stabilizing the economy as a function of national security, right? I think there's a catalytic role that we can play in promoting private sector-led economic growth through times of disruption and stabilization. I think we need to really consider that. And Amy Mitsutori, she's the current um, chief of the United Nations Office for Disaster 
risk reduction. You know, she said she said at the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, Foundation annual conference last summer. It's a private public partnership conference that they do now for eight years. She said mortality rates are going down. Last generation, you know, alerts and warnings were a big deal. We're alerting and warning people really well now through technology. We're reaching people now. They're not not 100 percent and not everybody's listening. That's another issue. But mortality rates are going down proportionally to the level and number of disasters that are happening globally. But economic losses are going up. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge of this current generation. Why? I, I made the comment earlier. Disasters are more the consequence of socioeconomic issues than natural factors, right? So we've got more infrastructure, more people, and so there's greater risk, greater at stake to lose. Think about New Madrid, this earthquake in the central U.S., where 200 years ago, when it, you know, 1814, when it last went off at a 7.7, whatever, bells in Boston rang, uh, White House furniture shook because of the geology of the East Coast. And you know what? Tows tipped over. Big deal. Today, 12,000 bridges would be destroyed or compromised. The oil and gas and fuel pipelines in our country would be compromised. The breadbasket of America, the, the food uh, supply chain from the Midwest to the East Coast, where two-thirds of the country lives, would be disrupted. Our nation will be, when it happens, not if it happens, when it happens again, will be significantly crippled from that. And this is a function of economic security. And, you know, there's been quite a discussion in the last couple of years, as I know you're aware of, of this notion of community lifelines. And I'm a huge fan of the work that FEMA has done in shepherding that dialogue and rolling out new national framework, national response framework, pushing on community lifelines. I'm talking about things like power, water, communications, transportation, et cetera. You know, and I've been advocating throughout that process that, you know, I, I think we need a paradigm shift. I'm a huge fan of lifelines, but I think we need a paradigm shift. I, I, I actually think the economy is the principal lifeline for Americans. Mm. And what, what I mean by that is, you know, other than basic personal health and well-being, the ability to, to produce wealth through jobs and sales, arguably the most important life-sustaining asset of American families and businesses. Now, this is, of course, enabled by community lifelines. You've got to have basic access to food and water, wastewater, communications, power, transportation, health and medical services. You have to have those things. And I think it's right for emergency managers to focus on how do we restore and stabilize those things so that they're accessible, but unto what? It's not unto lifelines. It's lifelines unto economic security. It's, it's getting people back to work, kids back to school, food on the shelves, right? I think from the, the community perspective, life starts getting back to normal when we have access to these functioning lifelines. And the access, again, enables us to engage in that economic security. And another point on this, look at the United States. There's about 26 million businesses in the United States. Of those, about 28%, if you took the most generous assessment of how many of those businesses touch the lifelines in any way or are related or affiliated with a lifeline? You, you get 28% looking at North American industry classi classification system codes. That means 70% of businesses in America are not affiliated with lifelines. So we're, we're focused on lifelines. And I'm saying we've got the rest of the community here to worry about, right? And, and we need to stabilize these communities. And, and this comes now to financial preparedness mm -hmm. because there's a downstream effect. Accessibility to power directly affects my ability to create wealth, which directly relates to, you know, if I can or cannot, how much cash do I have to sustain a disruption for a period of a week, two weeks, right. a month, three months, six months, right? So these are all tied together. But I think that, and one of the messages I've been talking about for years in the public square 
has been, I really think we need to embrace and align our thinking with the thinking of the uh, national security strategy where the economy really is a principal lifeline for Americans. Now, the question is, how do we how do we begin to embrace that as emergency managers? I think first we need to understand the economy. I think every emergency manager as part of their planning process should understand their economic backyard. Who's there? Who's doing business there? What's the makeup of large and small, the employment situation, et cetera? Who are you going to call, whether it's utilities restored or need to engage in the community? I think we need to work with uh, those communities to understand economic impacts of disasters more readily. And not just because we play whack-a-mole in emergency management, we just implement our programs, right? Individual public assistance. We just go out and spend. And the metric of success, Todd, did we spend the money? Is a project going? It's not, did it effectively help the community recover? And I think there's a real, the future here is, is the intersection of emergency management and economic development. How can we align the billions of dollars that are spent through the emergency management apparatus to support local and state economic development priorities, right? right? There's already economic development strategies in place. You know, in, in Puerto Rico right now, there's an economic development strategy. They're about to spend $50 billion into a $100 billion economy. Think about that. Think if the mainland had $2 trillion pumped into 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 things. I mean, that's going to be disruptive on, on many levels, but also provide a great opportunity for the island. How do we not just spend money and get projects done, but how do we actually advance the local economic development priorities, make the island more resilient, help create jobs, and do so in a way that doesn't hurt minorities? The Center for Diversity and Inclusion, they did a study a while back that said dollars spent by the federal government actually had the unintended consequence at times of disproportionately affecting minorities mm -hmm. in those communities. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. But it's, it happens. And it's because we spend without thinking. We're whacking moles. We're not problem solving and actually trying to stabilize these communities. And so I, I really think that when we talk about preparedness and resilience and we talk about financial preparedness, you have to start at a macro level and say, you know, what, emergency managers need to become a little more literate in economics, oh, econometrics, absolutely. at absolutely. least on the basic level. I just read a book uh, called The Economist Hour by uh, Benjamin Applebaum. And I put this on my 52-week challenge uh, book reading thing on the Ian Weekly page. And people ask me, why are you reading The Economy? And it's because it's important to understand. And, and he really goes into a lot of the history of how the economy was was developed throughout the years and what it means. And he talks about how the economy is affected by disasters in, in here. And it's it was really interesting to read. So I highly recommend it from anybody who's in emergency management to read that book. It's The Economist Hour by Benjamin Applebaum. But you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're starting to see more, especially in the public administration realm, more classes that are being required in the economy because Without an understanding of that, there's no way that you could actually help with the recovery. And uh, that's a really good point there, Joel. That's a really good point. It's funny. Everybody's got their journey into emergency management. I started as a business major in undergrad at Trinity International University in Deerfield, Illinois. And I had a nonprofit management emphasis. And I, I thought I was actually going to go run an organization in the developing world. My wife and I went to over 40 countries in Asia, Africa, the Middle East, doing all sorts of faith-based missionary work, humanitarian work. And, and that's where actually I tasted what it was like to get involved in the disaster and emergency management world for the first time in doing tsunami relief 
working with Sudanese refugees uh, who walked out of Darfur uh, and needed medical assistance, etc. And I then decided, actually in Thailand, after the tsunami, I remember watching thousands of volunteers from around the world with passion, innovation, and then the government, like, literally sitting, watching them do all the work. And I'm like, man, what if you took the passion and innovation of the private sector and the nonprofits and the volunteers and the capacity and wherewithal of the government and put them together and just had me on this big path to pursue this notion of private-public partnerships and what does that mean? And I actually went to George Washington University, got an MPA, Master's of Public Administration, focused then on international development and disaster relief as a sort of subtext there. Economics courses I took in business school and in grad school absolutely have framed the way I view the world. And and I comment this, and I think it's something that I I think that we need to look at for emergency management curriculum as well. Understanding the role of emergency managers and emergency management and and the effect that the spending has on the economy. FEMA and and the state governments really do a couple of things. They help convene, coordinate the interagency, and and they spend a lot of money, right? And so we need to do that part better, you know, and and that happens in context, so we really need to understand uh, econometrics, and I think we really need to leverage the power of private-public partnerships. And that's something actually I'm working on quite a bit these days at local, national, and multinational levels, both through uh, with and, and supporting uh, NATO and also through associations like the National Emergency Management Association. Uh, we're putting out guidance for how to build operational partnerships that accept the center of gravity as the private sector, where 85% of the infrastructure is owned by private sector. So let's accept that as a center of gravity. And as emergency managers, let's not try to do their job. Let's not try to move commodities in to a place when they already can do it. And by the way, when we move those in, you're going to have the unintended consequence of people grabbing those government furnished supplies, hoarding them, because hoarding is often a problem after disasters. Okay. To read the, the latest, the supply chain document was put out by the National Academies a few weeks ago on supply chain issues. And it commented on this, that hoarding is a big problem after disasters. And what happens is people hoard, then they stop spending on the local economy. So it's a double effect. We spend all this money on government stuff that costs twice as much. And then they're hoarding and they're not helping the local economy and the businesses are failing. So we just need to be smarter and we need to partner to get there. We we can't operate in a vacuum. We need to understand the economic environment, the neighborhoods we're working in. We need to understand the natural flow of business and industry uh, in communities. And we can do that. Data. I think we need to move toward a data-driven crazy idea i know it's really crazy data-driven scientific approach how we manage and navigate these issues in the future i'm very much involved and, and committed to help you know participate in developing those frameworks and testing those uh, globally Joel, we're getting close to the end here As a matter of fact we're on the hard stop but i do want you to be able to share your information how can people find you yeah you can reach me on linkedin spin global at www.spinglobal.co we are not a .com. And you can email me at jthomas at spinglobal.co. So happy to interact with anybody if you have any questions following this podcast. Thank you so much for your time. And I, I got to have to have back on again because there's a lot more I want to talk to you about. Yeah, I would love to come back on the show. This is great. Really appreciate it, Todd.